Good morning. First and foremost, thank you, brothers and sisters. Uh, So many of you greeted me this morning uh, and said that you were praying for me. Uh, What a privilege to know that I'm being held up by the people of God. Uh, And going through the book of Acts again this week, I'm reminded how the Lord delights in our prayers and to respond to them, and how often in response to our prayers, he strengthens us by his spirit so we better adhere to and declare the word of God. So thank you again for your prayers. It is a privilege and a pleasure to be with you. Uh, If you please turn in God's word to Acts chapter 7, or look to the screen, or look to your bulletin. The passage we're going to be going to is Acts chapter 7, verses 54, through chapter 8, verse 3. Hear now the reading of God's holy, precious, life-giving word. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him, him being Stephen. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened, and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Thus far the reading of God's word of power. Let's pray. Lord, the power truly is in your word and in your spirit. Thank you, King Jesus, for being our good shepherd, our savior, and our friend. Please bless the preaching of your word through your weak messenger, that your people might be built up in faith, that they all, that we all might be convicted of our sin, comforted by our sin bearer, and that your name might be glorified in and through us, especially as we approach a new year, and with this, a new season of hope in the gospel. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Brothers and sisters, I don't know about you, but I struggle a lot with something called cynicism. What is cynicism? In essence, it's when you see the broken things in the world around you, the broken things within you, and you say, this is all. This is all there is. Brokenness is the storyline. It is all of the storyline. And there's a lot of reasons why we succumb to cynicism. It happens, for example, if you grow up in a broken home. Uh, Our homes are many worlds, and oftentimes if we grow up with things like, like, let's say, 
divorce, abuse, uh, abandonment, neglect. That shapes the way we view the world, and the world looks irredeemably broken to us. It happens even in adult life. You've been through messy relationships, ones that have ended in heartache. Or you're in a, in a work situation in which you're constantly beaten down and trampled down. These storylines can quickly become the storyline for you. Maybe the most deadly thing of all, the most painful thing of all, is when you look inside your own heart. You know, it's ironic. Our culture tells us, look inside your heart to find meaning and truth. And I look in there and all that does is cause despair because I see my sin ever before me. Against you, you alone, have I sinned and done evil in your sight, we say before the Lord. And you feel it in your bones, and if you look at your heart, that will lead you into this cynicism as well, because Satan himself will preach to you every day, telling you, this is who you are. This is all there is. In some way or another, I believe we all struggle with cynicism, because we see the brokenness of this surrounding world and the brokenness of our own hearts. You know, one of the things that can also make us cynical, and this will tie into our passage today, is when you look out, out at events around you. I don't know if any of you do this, but perhaps you have looked out at, the broader, at our broader society, our broader culture, and all the ways in which it seems like everything's turning against us. It used to be that, especially in American culture, we had home field advantage. People cheered us on. Even if they didn't agree with our faith, they agreed with our values. And now, by and large, we're getting nothing but booze. And we feel that, and we feel the fact that more and more we're marginalized in our society, and that can also make us cynical. If you've ever said to yourself, well, things are only going to get worse, that's cynicism. I have a feeling a lot of us are prone to that grumpiness. You know, God's word is here to correct our thinking. It's here to renew our hearts and transform our minds. And when we talk about dark days, I have a feeling this day would, uh, would rank right up there, the day that we just read about. I mean, it was a dark day for Stephen. I mean, he's dead. It's, yes, maybe he boldly declared the word of God. That's great. He's still dead. A game over for Stephen. But you look at the broader church, too. As if that one death was not enough, Saul, Saul of Tarsus, the religious leader, who in a sense was an antichrist figure at this point. He wanted to, in a, bit, in a sense, be that serpent strike, destroying the promises and the people of God, as if this one death was not enough. With blood now on his breath, he is hunting down the rest of the early church. In a sense, trying to commit what might eventually become a genocide. Wipe out the church in the infancy, in the cradle of their existence. Talk about a dark day. Imagine being the people who are running for their lives that day. Imagine young mothers, babies nursing on their chest, running for their lives. Old men hobbling on their canes and on their staffs, running for their lives with a sword at their back, thinking it's over. It's done. Before we even had a chance to start in this magnificent journey that is the Christian life, where we walk by grace through faith in Christ. We're going to be wiped out. A dark day for them, right? You can imagine it. And if we were to read their situation, read this passage, like sadly we often read our own lives, we would grow cynical. We'd be prone to despair. And that is why we're going to be turning from the darkest day here to understand a new 
the hidden power of the church, that maybe our hearts lie to us, maybe our eyes lie to us, maybe seeing is not believing, but believing is seeing. Maybe we should not read the darkness of our circumstances up into the throne of God and thus enshroud him in darkness so we can't fathom him. Maybe we should start in the light of God, in the light of his word, and let that permeate our darkness, our brokenness, so we might walk by his truth. Does that sound good? Is that what you guys want to do today? Then let's turn in God's word to Acts chapter 1 ever so briefly so we can understand anew the hidden power of the church. Acts chapter 1, verses 6 through 8. Jesus is about to ascend into heaven, creating a problem for all of us. Our Savior is no longer physically present. That's hard for us. A lot of times we'll say, well, if only I had a miracle or a sign. If only I had Jesus in the flesh. By the way, they had the miracles and signs. They had him in the flesh and they crucified him. (laughs) It's a problem for us that Jesus is gone because it requires us to walk by faith, not by sight. But Jesus does not leave us alone. The book of Luke, you know, Luke wrote the book of Luke, the gospel of Luke, and the book of Acts. And the gospel of Luke, it's the earthly ministry of Jesus. And the book of Acts, it's the heavenly ministry of Jesus. When we read the book of Acts, we are still seeing King Jesus at work, even though he is absent. And this is how he tells us in verses 6 through 8. His disciples approach him. And they say, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? Is this when you will make all things right? Is this when you will wipe every tear from our eyes? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And this passage right here is the key to understanding not just the whole of the book of Acts, but the whole of the Christian church in our history, the whole of the Christian life. This is our hidden power. In a sense, this book should have never been called the Acts of the Apostles. That was a name later given to it. It's not about great men and women. It is about ordinary women and men, people like us, brothers and sisters who walked under the lordship of King Jesus as he led them by his Holy Spirit who he had poured out upon them and his Holy Word, which also would carry them. King Jesus, this is the acts of King Jesus by Holy Spirit and Holy Word as he builds, preserves, and defends his church in each of you, even unto the very end of the age. Do you guys understand the principle? Well, let's prove it. Let's keep going through God's word. If this is true, if this is really the storyline of the book of Acts, if this is the storyline of the church, if this is our storyline, you should expect to see that through all the pages of Acts. Acts chapter 2, what does Jesus do? He pours out his spirit upon his people. And what do they then do in turn? They share the holy word. Holy Spirit and holy word. And under the lordship of King Jesus, the by the power of his Holy Spirit and Holy Word, the gospel starts colliding with hearts. And people either start bowing the knee in worship or raising their fist in anger. And he starts gathering for himself his own church, his bride here. And the first thing they do as a church toward the end of Acts chapter 2, verse 42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayers. We often talk about the early church and the remarkable generosity. The most essential part of the early church 
was that they fell at the feet of King Jesus as he ministered to them with his word. Let's keep the storyline going. Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4, we're told that both Peter and John had been arrested. They'd gone before uh, their accusers on trial. They'd been released. And they came back, and the church is now under increasing persecution. And the believers, and this is why I'm so grateful that so many of you prayed for me this morning. The believers pray for boldness. They recognize that they are under attack. If they're simply looking at their circumstances, they're going to grow weary and faint-hearted. And in Acts chapter 4, after they had prayed for additional boldness, what does King Jesus do? Verse 31, And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. This doesn't mean the Holy Spirit wasn't already present within them. It means in a sense they were strengthened by the Holy Spirit as they prayed for and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Holy Spirit, holy word. And why is it so important to trace this trajectory through the book of Acts? Because this is not just for the church as a whole. It's for every single believer within the church. There would be ordinary people, as we will see soon, who would need to know that King Jesus is leading them and carrying them, preserving them, defending them by his Holy Spirit and Holy Word. Acts chapter 6, they raise up deacons, people who would materially minister to the people of God for the sake of Christ Jesus. And what are they looking for in their deacons in Acts chapter 6? We are told that they are looking for, in verse 3, Men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom. The spirit and of wisdom. Uh, and this is an order in verse 4 for the elders to better declare, the, or better engage in the ministry of the word. So Holy Spirit, Holy Word. And when they had agreed on this, they chose a number seven deacons. And the first one mentioned is Stephen. And he's given an actual description here. A man full of faith in who? The Holy Spirit. As soon as this ordinary man is given a shout-out in God's word, and it's a shout-out in association with the key storyline, the key theme of the book of Acts, you realize he's being set apart. He's being, he's being raised up and prepared for the Lord's usage in these pages and in real human history. And so he's raised up, and this is what he's known for. And we're told in verse 8, Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. By the way, whenever you read about power in the book of Acts, it's usually referring, well, it's always referring to spiritual power. Power in the Holy Spirit. And people would dispute with him. Remember, the word of God, by the Spirit of God under King Jesus, always provokes a response. Either you will bow the knee in worship, or you'll raise the fist in anger, and Stephen's getting the latter here. This young man, probably really new to the Christian faith, as everyone would have been at that time, this is a guy who's young in the Christian faith, a baby Christian, if you will, carried by King Jesus by word and by spirit, and he's disputing with these people who are opposing him, but they cannot, verse 10, withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. By the way, if you're going to go ahead and defy and collide with King Jesus by his word and spirit, I'm putting my money on him. We have no reason to despair. And so Stephen, carried by the Holy Spirit, prepares to share the word of God. It's amazing. These people invented false charges against him, which, by the way, should remind us of somebody else. Just like his Savior, 
They draw him up on false charges in order to perhaps condemn him and execute him. And they put him on trial. It's something amazing happens. At least I find this astonishing. You know, I could tell you all day about my sin, but if you tell me about my sin, I'm probably going to get really, really defensive. Just naturally. I really struggle with this. Pray for me in that regard, please. I, I, I could tell you I stink. You tell me I stink. And we're probably going to have words. <laughs> I naturally am very defensive. Stephen here is brought up on trial. He has the opportunity to defend himself and say, these charges are false. This is an injustice. And instead, he turns the table. In a sense, in the position of almost Old Testament prophet, he declares the word of God and prosecutes God's case against this rebellious people. They think they're putting him on trial, just like they thought they were putting King Jesus on trial when he was falsely accused and condemned. And instead, the tables are turned. Stephen, by the Spirit of God, declares the Word of God. And he recites a whole history of rebellion of God's people. <laughs> you guys think I'm out of line here. Let me tell you something. Your whole family line was out of line. And you were out of line too. And he really brings the hammer down. His closing argument is chapter 7, verses 51 through 53, right before our passage where he concludes. And again, this is not how you win friends and influence people. He says, you stiff-necked people, in other words, you stubborn people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist who? The Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? By the way, the prophets declared what? The word of God. And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You, who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. What are his final charges against them? What is his closing argument? You resisted the Holy Spirit, you rejected the Holy Word, and you killed the Savior of all creation. King Jesus, by word and by spirit, not only carries Stephen here in this moment, but he draws up his charges against these rebels. And by the way, this is, we should be encouraged by this because God does not leave us without his word and without his spirit. And now that brings us to our passage. And I know I just spent a long time leading up this passage, but now we can race through this passage because you guys get the theme, Right? You get what the storyline is. It's not about great people. It's about a great God who does not let us go. Now our actual passage. As we talk about the hidden power of the church, now we're going to move from darkness to light. You know, it's not enough to see Jesus say this in principle. By my Holy Spirit and my Holy Word, I'll do this. It's not enough to merely see it in the bigger picture of, the act, of Acts. It's not even enough to see it working through the life of Stephen. We need to see that this grace is sufficient unto death. King Jesus, will you carry me through my sin and my suffering and my shame even to the very end? Now when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him, of course. But he, full of who? 
full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. I feel like whenever I approach this verse, we're treading on holy ground. Jesus standing at the right hand of God, do you realize this is the one time, the one time in all of Scripture you see Jesus standing at the right hand of God. You know, we confess, along with a lot of the rest of the New Testament, he is seated at the right hand of God. But in this particular passage, he standeth at the right hand of God. Why? And why would this be meaningful for Stephen? Because in his trial before rebellious mankind, he's been accused and condemned. But there's a much more important courtroom. In the courtroom of the true judge and Lord of all creation, his Savior, his friend, his good shepherd, the one who so faithfully led him to this point, now stands in the posture of a witness on his behalf before the judgment seat of God, declaring his righteousness by Christ's own righteousness and atoning blood. The witness that really matters is just taking the stand. And this is what Stephen's going to need. Now, of course, by the Spirit of God, he sees this vision. What do you expect to see alongside the Spirit of God? The Word of God. And so he opens his mouth to declare that which he has just witnessed. How could he not if he saw this? Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Again, this isn't going to make the people happy. They cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. This is such a barbaric and brutal way to kill somebody. You know, we, and here in El Paso, there's many things we don't have much, have, much of. Uh, I don't know, rain, grass, uh, trees. Uh, basically anything that's green, anything that makes, reminds me of nature. Uh, what we do have a lot of here is rocks, dirt and rocks. We have a lot of rocks. I don't know about you, but when we landscaped our backyard, it's ba- it, we basically made it all gravel. And that's what you do here. Oh, unless you're Pastor Dawson. By the way, that grass is lovely. Uh, <laughs> we have rocks. So when we talk about stoning, we're not talking about picking up a handful of that gravel and chucking it at somebody. That would hurt. That probably wouldn't kill somebody. And we don't only have rocks in our yard. Uh, most of us have rock walls surrounding our yards. Again, just rock after rock after rock. That's basically all El Paso is, is rocks. And, but even as we look at the walls around our yards and those bigger stones, these are not the type of rocks they're using to stone somebody. In that culture, in that day and age, what would often ha- happen when someone's being stoned is they'd be thrown off a cliff or a ledge, expected to smash their bodies when they hit the ground. And whatever part of them is left unshattered will then be dealt with by giant rocks or small boulders that are heaved down on top of them. A horrible, brutal, barbaric way to die. Don't lose the fact that this is how Stephen is being killed, even as he's being carried by King Jesus, by his Holy Spirit and Holy Word. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul, this Antichrist figure. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, and again, this is the word of God, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Do you recognize those words? Are they familiar to you? Receive my spirit? When did you hear those before? 
King Jesus is enabling his servant to die, in a sense, in his name and for his name. So much so that not only does Stephen repeat the words of the cross, he changes it ever so much. When Jesus called out, he called out to the Father. And now as Stephen calls out, he calls out to Lord Jesus, who he knows is standing at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty, on his behalf. And falling to his knees, and again, you can imagine the horror and agony of this death here. Falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Again, do you recognize these words? Are they familiar to you? His dying words are the words of the cross. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. It's amazing that God's word calls us falling asleep when he is dying in this fashion. Death be not proud. And most of us will probably not die with hymn, hymns or words of scripture on our lips. Death can be very ugly, very traumatic. Those of you who are in the military with me know this all too well. But for the Christian who dies in Christ, it is called falling asleep. No matter how horrible it is, it is like falling asleep. It is like this is the hard dream and that is the eternal blessed awakeness that we get to enjoy with the living God. It is like the good shepherd closes his hand upon this life and opens it upon life anew. We are safely carried through unto death by King Jesus, by his Holy Spirit and Holy Word unto the end. Darkness to light. You know, it'd be easy to think, well, okay, that's, it's encouraging. We see how King Jesus has carried Stephen, just like he carries his church, by his Holy Spirit and Holy Word. But what after that? I mean, now a, a genocide is being launched, right, by this Antichrist figure, Saul of Tarsus. But God's Word gives us more than that. Again, we walk by faith, not by sight. But a lot of times, in a sense, God's Word gives us sight of what he is doing. Uh, the people of God are running for their lives with the sword at their back, but where are they running to? And you will be my witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. That day, they're running the sword at their back, thinking that perhaps all hope is lost. And instead, they are actually bringing the gospel in the first great advance of the church in history. This is the beginning of the gospel going out to the nations. What they thought might have meant death for millions upon millions upon millions. I was just reading the statistics this morning. In the past 50 years, the number of Christians in Africa has gone from about, I don't know, I think it was 120 million to over 600 million. It started here with the sword at their backs. Was King Jesus doing something through this horrible experience, through this darkest of days? You better believe it. But not just for God's people. I would argue even for Stephen. And I, I feel like I'm on solid ground here because I believe this is what Augustine argued as well. He says, we owe the conversion of Saul of Tarsus to the prayers of Stephen. It didn't start on the road to Damascus. Just like when Jesus said, Father, forgive them. And you had a centurion who came to Christ. You had religious leaders who later came to Christ. Many of the same people who said, crucify him. Now said, I'll worship him, even at the cost of my own life. In the same way, Stephen cries out, cries out, 
forgive them. He says, do not hold this sin against them. And even in the imagery here, it's as if, remember, he'd been able to peer into the portals of heaven. It's as if the portals now close upon his prayer and upon his earthly life. And the next time you see the portals open is over the road to Damascus. Saul, why do you persecute me? You know, even when Saul's relaying his testimony, everything he used to count as, lo- as loss, everything he used to count as gain, he now counts as loss. He mentions right in the middle of it, as for zeal, as a persecutor of the church. You can almost imagine him taking a deep breath and lifting up that pen. The work that God did, that Christ, King Jesus did by his Holy Spirit and Holy Word through Stephen clearly impacted this Antichrist figure, Saul, who then became Paul and a follower of the living God the rest of his life. Hey, uh, Colossians, uh, set your minds on things above, not on things on earth below. For your life is hidden with Christ and God. Where did he see that modeled for him? Well, the man he murdered. Uh, He tells the Ephesian elders as he says farewell to them in Acts 20. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. If only I may finish the race, complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. Where did he see someone living that out? Even the way in which he died and being prepared as a drink offering to be poured out. I have finished the race. Now I await the crown. These are the final words he ever wrote. He would die like the man he martyred. Did God use this darkest of days for his glory? You better believe it. He used it magnificently, not just in the people of God, but even through the person, this ordinary brother in Christ, Stephen. In the same way, a lot of us, when we grow faint, uh, when we grow faint-hearted, when we grow weary, as we look around at our hard circumstances, at our hard lives, we're prone to grow weary and faint-hearted. We see all these hard things, and we think this is all. Of course, we have tunnel vision with this, because when we look around at the uh, surrounding world, we see 10,000 people approximately coming to Christ every day in the underground church in China. In approximately the last 20 years, it's about a million people have come to Christ in Iran. Uh, all throughout the world, there's a revival in Brazil. So they're now the number one center of missionaries to the U.S. By the way, you know who the number one recipient of missionaries in the world is? The U.S. Approximately 30,000 missionaries within our country right now. Why for a second, why for a second would we think that King Jesus is done by his Holy Spirit and his Holy Word? But you know what? Even if we saw none of this, None of the numbers, none of the stats, none of the fruit. Can we let our God be God, and can we trust him? I'll close with this final story. In the early 1950s, I think it was five men, young missionary men, were martyred in the Central, Central American jungles, trying to reach an unreached tra- tribe called the Huaranis. Not long after they were killed, their wives went back into the jungle and shared the gospel with the same tribe. And many of them, including many of the men who had martyred their husbands, came to know Jesus as their Lord and Savior. It actually launched the modern missions movement in America. People were so on fire and so inspired by what happened there that they took off to the mission field to spread the glory and the fame of God to the rest of the world. But when Elizabeth Elliot, one of the widows of Jim Elliot, one of the guys who was, who was uh, martyred there. She wrote this book called Through the Gates of Splendor, and she recounted this whole story. But in the epilogue to her book, at the end of her book, she wrote in the final years of her life, 
after some 50 years had passed. And she said, people come up to me all the time and say, well, that must have been really hard. But, I mean, at least a lot of the Huaranis came to Christ, right? And look, what did with the modern missions movement? And in the final years of her life, she writes in this epilogue, but what if he didn't? What if he didn't? Can I still let my God be God? If you understand the storyline, brothers and sisters, I'm confident you will. King Jesus carries you by his Holy Spirit, by his Holy Word. He builds, preserves, and defends you by his Holy Spirit and Holy Word, even unto death, even unto the end of the age. And the good shepherd will never let anyone or anything snatch you from his hand. We don't need to see it because we know it. Will you trust him? God bless you. Have a happy new year. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for reminding me and my brothers and sisters, my family in Christ, that we belong to King Jesus, that we are carried by his Holy Spirit and Holy Word, that this is the power, the extraordinary power that carries an ordinary people. Help us to find a refuge there, even as we start making our new resolutions for a new year. Let us resolve first and foremost to rest in the hand of our Good Shepherd. We pray this in the holy name of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen.